This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 18th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. The filibuster is a long-standing rule in the Senate, but partisan wrangling means the Senate is moving ahead with very few pieces of legislation. Example, a budget to operate the federal government. Add to that a claim that the rule isn't even constitutional. John Samples is director of the Cato Institute's Center for Representative Government. He comments. What is the best case that can be made that the filibuster is an unconstitutional exercise uh, within the Senate? The case depends on the idea that all of the supermajority requirements for passing legislation uh, are in the Constitution. However, the problem with that position, and I think why most people realize that this is a weak uh, case, is that uh, the Constitution also gives both houses of Congress the power to set their own rules. So that would seem to include also the power to have supermajority requirements like the filibuster. They, in other words, they can be added to what's in the Constitution. So when you take that and the whole question of a political question, that you know, really you would have the Supreme Court uh, intervening deeply into the affairs of a uh, major house of Congress, it really becomes quite clear that uh, the courts are not going to get involved in telling the Senate that it can't do what it's done for decades. This lawsuit filed by uh, Common Cause challenging the legitimacy of the filibuster comes, I guess, at a time when uh, a few Washington establishment uh, wisdom people are saying, oh, no, the problem now is clearly the Republicans. I'm referring to, of course, Norm Ornstein and people like that who are saying, look, you know, for a long time, things were going great. And that's because Republicans and Democrats worked together. Well, yeah. And all of this depends, of course, on uh, the formal D.C. community having a memory of about a week or two backwards and about a week forward, right? Uh, the whole business its of filibusters it's, and sort of cooperation and compromise, you know, it's now not remembered at all that uh, when George W. Bush tried to get some movement on the Social Security issue, which looked forward for decades actually trying to solve that problem, uh, not a single Democrat came forward to even talk about the issue, right? And it's also on the filibuster side. It's now uh, completely forgotten that uh, the last big filibuster go-around was with judicial nominations and found the Democratic Party, 2004, 2005 or so, coming out with really strong and interesting arguments uh, in favor of the filibuster. So... That's the other one other important point about the filibuster is it's very clear that the filibuster is entrenched in the sense that both parties ultimately want it. We had a serious uh, attempt more or less to change it a couple of years ago and it became clear that the Democrats wanted it. The underlying issue here is for both parties, they would rather forsake the legislation that won't get passed, right, if you have the filibuster, than – have to uh, live under the burden of legislation that would be passed by the other party if you didn't have the filibuster and had simple majority rule. So that's a deep political logic that actually uh, manifests itself and will continue to. And it seems pretty intuitive that if a rule survives a change of party power within a chamber, that's a durable rule. Indeed, yeah. 
indeed it is. I think the filibuster has had uh, bad results in the past, the, but we're well beyond the civil rights era in the filibuster. Uh, that pre presented real uh, problems for the society and for the working of the governmental institutions. But again, uh, that's now getting toward 50 years since we're beyond that. Uh, in the situation we find ourselves, I, I really think that the filibuster actually works for the common good or the general welfare in the sense that when you think about the alternative, you have highly polarized parties and parties that at this point don't seem to have much together to work on in common or agree with and beliefs in common. What the filibuster does is say you're, to pass legislation, you're either going to have to have a few people come over right, and work with you. Uh, or you're not going to get legislation. The alternative would be without the filibuster is something like Obamacare where you get this 51, 50%, 51%, a relentless kind of forcing uh, one's views down the uh, throats of the other side. And I think whatever you think about the content of that, I think you and I would not like some of it, not like some of it. In that kind of situation, both sides are ultimately going to feel like they've been really hard done by and it's going to actually pollute the society more and make it – and unbelievably make our politics even more bitter and angry, I think. Uh, but uh, recent experience too convinced me of the, the importance of the filibuster. I was uh, on the Hill the other day talking to a staffer and this was uh, from an office of a senator who you know, usually wouldn't – contact Cato necessarily, but she had contacted Cato. And it turned out I realized why, because they wanted to get legislation and they were they had to get to 60. And what they had and what their party had produced wasn't going to get them to 60. So they started looking around for other alternatives. Uh, and so we got into a conversation and something may come of it. I mean, I think uh, the filibuster can produce innovations in policy and policy thinking as people go around looking for stuff that everyone can sign on to, right? There's another aspect of this too. When one group is blamed for all of the recent problems, that is a failure to get some sort of movement to get the wheels of government uh, moving, it assumes that what we had before was producing awesome policies or like really good stuff. And over the last 30 years, when it comes to spending, the the thing that Congress does best, I can't call – I can't say that those were good years in terms of where we are now in terms – in terms of debt to GDP ratios and things like that, it's certainly true. It's it's not uh, one. The more one looks back over the last uh, twenty years, at least, uh, the it's not inspiring. I do think the critiques of the filibuster uh, and sort of a, the any time the word gridlock appears and one side is uh, associated with it or the other, uh, that means that there's an assumption by the speaker that really what we need here in Washington and what the country needs is an active Congress that's, you know, the, the ideal Congress is LBJ's Congress of 1965-66. 210 me measures introduced, 185 passed. That's the real, that's what Congress should be doing on. It's a progressive vision. It's buried in the background of these kinds of critiques. Uh, and so those who frustrate that or institutions that make it harder for that to be done, 
uh, these are all taken to be things that are bad as a general rule, whatever the content is. But I think, again, you know, having this kind of polarized views that we have, which people have a right to their views, and it's reflect, it does reflect uh, differences in the public. Do we really want bare majorities making legislation about the most controversial things and most embittering issues in our society? Doesn't it make sense that they have to in some ways reach out and have a broader consent to these policies than we would otherwise? John Samples is author of the book, The Struggle to Limit Government. He's also the director of the Cato Institute's Center for Representative Government. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.